Hello and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, the first one in December as the holiday season approaches faster than toilet rolls flew off the shelf in the first lockdown. This is podcast number 111, which is considered to be an unlucky number in cricket in England, and it's also called 111 in The Lord of the Rings. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and the interviews are also coming in thick and fast, and this week we again have four interviews on the podcast. And they are with Benoit Tavernier, Product Manager, Specialty Rice Ingredients at Beneo, Julia Somerdin, Co-Founder and CEO of Labby, and an interview with two people, Michael W. Hoden, CEO of the Global Coalition on Aging, and Dr. Patrick Campos, Senior Medical Affairs Director for Nutritia, and also with Alex Kinney, Applications Engineer, and Mike Monnelly, Field Marketing Manager at Thermo Fisher Scientific. And of course, we also have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. It was a dry weekend here, although I'm not quite sure how. Allegedly, next weekend will be as well, although in between we are forecast some snow showers at night. The advent calendars are already in full swing. Unfortunately, my son wanted the Lego Star Wars one, which flew off the shelves and is now going for about four times the original price online. Apparently, there are people out there who just buy items online and then resell them, and all kinds of bots that help them snap up things the second they go on sale. I guess it's also the same with concert tickets, if you can remember what concerts are. That's when bands go on stage an hour late and the t-shirt costs the same as a month's mortgage. Let's take a look at this week's news. Not quite so busy on the news front this week, although still plenty to tell you about in case you didn't read it over the past few days. Christian Hansen extended its Fresh Q bioprotection solution in the fermented plant-based sector. Salzburg Milch is promoting reusable lids on some of its products. SIG is going to take full ownership of a joint venture to leverage growth opportunities in the Middle East and Africa, and Coexpand said it has seen some positive results with 100% RPS for FFS yogurt packaging applications. Firminich has joined the Swiss Food and Nutrition Valley Organization to accelerate sustainable food innovation, and Bega Cheese has confirmed it is buying Lion Dairy and Drinks in Australia. The Canadian government announced investments to support supply-managed dairy farms. We had a roundup of some more new festive products, and a report showed the extent of the dairy industry in Dubai, and it's a lot bigger than you might think. On the event front, the UK Dairy Expo 2021 has been postponed, and I wonder when we're going to be travelling again for anything other than shopping. Friesland Campina Germany is accelerating its transformation strategy, and more news from Friesland Campina, this time its Engro company in Pakistan, where it is partnering with the Bank of Punjab to help dairy farmers. Griner Packaging, who we had on the show not so long ago, has joined the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, and a report from the US says excess milk could reduce power plant emissions. You can read these and more at dairyreporter.com. 
So let's get moving with the most important bit, and that's our guests. And this week, first, we talk about rice starch. Beneo has announced the launch of its new pre-cooked functional native rice starch, Remy Pure S52P, which allows food manufacturers to produce clean-label food preparations such as cold-processed sauces, dressings, dairy desserts, and bakery fillings with an instant functional native rice starch. Benoit Tavernier, product manager for specialty rice ingredients at Beneo can tell us more. Could you give me some background on what the new native rice starch is? Yes, definitely. Uh, we have the clean label trends in uh, food and beverages, which is basically not a trend anymore. It's, it's really mainstream as we've seen that almost 25% of the new product developments do contain a, a clean label claim. So I would not call it a trend anymore. The consumer is just asking for it. So back in 2016, in fact, uh, we jumped on that trend with the launch of Remy Pure S51, which was our first answer to give alternatives to chemically modified starches uh, in the market or chemically modified rice starch also in our portfolio. That was a product which could be used for demanding process conditions. Think of a Bechamel sauce. Then we had, I think, two years back, the launch of Remy Pure S52, that was launched for products produced under a harsh process. Think of dressings, think of baby food. So harsh process conditions being a low pH, high shear, high temperatures. So for example, sterilization process. However, when we came into the market with that product, we also regularly received some feedback that a lot of our customers were searching for an instant starch withstanding harsh process conditions. So an instant starch giving immediate viscosity to your product, so without the need of a heating step. And that brought us to the new development of the Remy Pure S52P. So developed for products like, for example, dressings, bakery cream, where often a cold process is used, so without a heating step. And there is a need for process tolerance, meaning the need that it can survive low pH conditions and high shear conditions. And so how long has this been in development? You mentioned the, the 51. How long has it been since that one? And, and how long has this been in the works? Remy Pure is in the market since 2016. So then the S52 came. And for us, a logical next step was the launch of the S52P. So for us, it's a continuous development. And now we come with a, a logic next step in the, in the Remy Pure range. And as you might think, we will also, regarding to the future, go into the direction of further development of clean label starches. And what does the S52P address? Yeah, like I said, it's really meant to be used in products that are produced under a cold process and have harsh process conditions, so low pH and high shear conditions. We do think of bakery cream, dressings, dips, fruit pie fillings, for example, where in some of these mentioned applications we already did some internal tests at our Pinio Technology Center. What benefits does it provide to manufacturers that will be using it? The unique characteristics of, of rice is really the creamy texture, the creamy mouthfeel. That really makes it stand out from, from other botanical sources, like, for example, corn starch, tapioca starch, or potato starch. Rice starch is a very stable starch, meaning it helps you in creating a shelf life stable product as well as ensuring a free-store stable product. So also there, uh, one of the potential applications is, is really the ready-to-eat meals and, and the frozen ready-to-eat meals, because we see that it survives very well the free-store cycles. 
have you been testing the product just internally or have you been working with some manufacturers in their own facilities to test it? Both. So like I said, we have our um, Bedio Technology Center where we do some application trials. What we also did with this new product, so we tested it in dressings and in bakery cream with very good results. So the results were really the creamy texture and a very stable texture. During our uh, development work, we also worked with some partners that also uh, tested the product and, and were very happy and we, had, we received some positive feedback there. Is it applicable to dairy and dairy alternative products? In some products, definitely. So think of fruit pie fillings. On the other hand, for some dairy products or dairy alternative products, there is no need for such a process tolerant product. And we might have other rice starches that can be used in, in that category. Recently, we did some development work there as well uh, with our rice starches. So looking at the right ingredients to improve the texture of dairy alternative products so there also we saw some, some very interesting results, not always with the S52P, but with other rice starches in our portfolio. And I guess with it being a rice starch, it would be something that consumers would see as being something that's natural and that they can pronounce, which seems to be important these days. Definitely. So, yeah, a lot of the consumers are really searching for products containing ingredients that they do understand, that they can recognized from the cupboard that sound natural from our own consumer research and other consumer researchers uh, we could clearly see that uh, consumers perceive rice as a very natural and a very familiar ingredient and sounds very natural to them so i think more than 70 percent of those consumers really said okay for me rice is very very familiar and are happy to see that on an ingredient list and is this something that you will continue working on this kind of range of ingredients? Yes, definitely. So everything which is on trend nowadays, so clean label, so everything which has to do with clean label rice ingredients is definitely on our radar and our development work goes in that direction. Uh, next to that, we see the organic trend growing. So a recent innovation and a recent launch was as well an organic rice starch. So that was during springtime and summertime where we also see the need. It's a niche market, but a, a niche market with a, with a very nice growing trend. So I think organic and clean label are definitely on the radar. And that's put first when, when we look at new developments. Uh, rice being a familiar ingredient, it's one of the reasons why we also recently increased our capacity by 50% at our factory in Weismal. So only proving that rice is really on trend and we see, we see a nice future for, uh, for these ingredients. And now it's over to the east coast of the U.S., to Massachusetts to be precise, to chat with Julia Somerden, co-founder and CEO of Labby. Labby is an early stage startup specializing in AI-enabled optical sensing solutions for raw milk testing. And it recently raised $480,000 in seed funding from Agritech Capital. All right, could you tell me a little about Labby, what it is and what it does? So uh, thank you, James. So my pleasure. Uh, Labby is an um, ag tech company born out of MIT three years ago as a result of a research in optical sensing. So my co-founder and I met at MIT and we met at MIT Media Lab. We really enjoy working with each other. And two years later, we decided to found a company. That's how we started. So back to Labby, uh, Labby is an um, optical intelligence company. 
Uh, our technology is a combination of AI plus spectroscopy. Our primary application today is milk for dairy farmers. So we provide fast, accurate, and milk testing solution for farmers on their farm. Uh, that is very unique because today, uh, all the farm milk testing done at the lab level. So, so that is our original vision, bring lab technology to the field. And so what was the issue when you first started that you set out to address? So the farmers are no stranger to mastitis. Uh, mastitis is a global challenge for dairy farmers. It is a artery infection. Uh, it is also the most expensive yet a common disease for dairy cows. Uh, when you think about there are 250 million cows around the world, including 100 million commercial cows, there are 25% cows will get mastitis each year, regardless of how well the farms are managed. And uh, mastitis, each case about $500, you know, on average per case. So today, the problem is kind of the milk testing stood down as 50 years ago. So it's all manual based. The lab technicians drive to each individual farms and manually collect the milk sample from each individual cows and send that samples back to lab, 100 miles away it could be. So farmer waited for three, four days before they get the result. But that often that's too late. So it is very labor intensive, time consuming. And uh, when you think about today, we leave the IoT age every instant. So farmers are looking for a way to have the milk testing done on their farm so they can spot the sick cows right away. Thinking about this, if you just had tested a cow two days ago, right? Next testing is six weeks uh, far away. And then two days later, you have a cow has mastitis. And often they're, we call them subclinical. That means they have no any visual symptoms, no smells, no color change. So farmers really don't know, but mastitis spread among, easily um, among the herd. And farmer depends on, the revenue depends on the milk quality and the yields. So that is why mastitis is really tough challenge for dairy farmers. And today we look at the based on our research, the cost of mastitis to the industry is about $32 billion each year. So that's how it started. We want to address this problem by providing new testing on the farm and by automated testing solution. So uh, reduce the labor, uh, labor interventions. What was the solution that you developed and how does it work? So the LABI at its core is it is AI powered spectrometer. So you often hear AI, artificial intelligence, we like to wear light intelligence. So basically uh, this product can really capture the milk information without any chemical assistance. Then under 10 seconds, our device will generate instant results on milk quality and the composition that including milk of butter fat, protein, and the somatic cell count, which are called SEC. Then that data, data is also available on the cloud. So farmer or dairy processors, they can access the information anytime. So that can help the dairy farmer to spot the sick cows in real time, uh, help them to provide insight data, you know, to help their decision-making process. So the, the results that, that they get from the test is immediate? It's immediate, yes. It's under 10 seconds. Today we have uh, two products. One is a portable, another call is a fixed mount. So one is a standalone, and one is a connected. So the standalone we call handheld um, lab sensing device. That is kind of like your pair with your smartphone with the Bluetooth. 
Uh, you can put anywhere in your pocket, do, go anywhere, do the milk testing. Um, that really good work for farmers or uh, a vet because oftentimes the vets have no, um, they need assistance to do post before treatment and post treatment comparison, even for mastitis. Right now, they also have no means to help them determine if the treatment is effective. Uh, so with our device handheld, right? So these are like doctor's tools. They can tell if what is before the SCC for mastitis, what is the after. And often the feed company also like very much the handheld because that's for feed efficiency. Whenever you change the feed, the milk um, quality change, but there is a broken feedback loop right now. Right, so with our device, they can test the milk quality for butter fat, the protein. The ratio between butter fat and the protein is a direct indication on how efficient the feed. So with our device, um, the salespeople for the feed company, uh, they also like that, use that on their daily operation. Other is we call fixed mounted, right? Fixed mounted is that we call our inline sensor. You have seen that from uh, Appy Milk, you might heard it's a uh, Israel companies. Uh, very similar, so the device will, will be connected with the existing milking systems seamlessly. So whenever milk starts, the milk will flow through pipe, parallelly going through our device, and without any uh, human intervention, our device look at the milk flow through our device and detect the milk composition information, the milk fat, the protein, SCC, instant, also under 10 seconds. Then that data will input on the cloud, so our data also combining with the herd information data, we look at the days in milking, we look at breed information, we look at the past history. From there, that our AI model will do the magic, a cow prediction, right? We can even predict that before the cow even have any symptoms of mastitis, we can predict if the cow, what's the likelihood the cow would have mastitis. So we do a twofold, do the milk testing on the go and predict the cow's performance for the future. And is it easy for farmers and those working in the industry to use? Yes. Contrary to traditional lab-based technology, that you need lab technician training, right? And not everyone can operate because those are half million, million, uh, very expensive lab uh, equipment instrument. Often we say that they use a fast machine. Our equipment are kind of dummy cameras. Anyone who knows how to use a smartphone can operate our device. And also it's very easy to interconnect for portable, that's very easy, just like a, your smartphone. You can operate, put the milk in the QVAT, insert QVAT into the uh, portable, and then it's instant, under 10 cents, you see results. So as I said, that's why I say, if you know how to use a smartphone, you can use our portable device. For inline one, we will do the, take care of the installation, initial installation. We will take care of the database integration as well. What we need is one thing, we need, do need hot water on the farm. As any, this is common for any optical device because the fat uh, does build inside the QVAT, right? So to, between the milking, just like currently all the farmers flush in their pipes with the hot water, they will also flush through our device. So that part is automated. But there is some requirement for the farm operation, like hot water, like um, what type of milking system we, we do investigate upon, say, if our equipment will fit with their farms. But other than that, it's very easy to use, very easy to operate. 
if you're able to do a lot of this stuff earlier, then it's saving companies and farmers a lot of money. Yes, that's a great question. So I say the benefit is twofold, right? The first is real-time milk testing. The second is automate uh, the testing process. Uh, when we look at our solution come at the pivotal time today, uh, when more and more farmers are looking for affordable and automated milk testing solutions under the pressure from industrial consolidation, particularly right now under COVID, right? We have labor shortage issues. So being able to test in the farm with minimum human intervention is a big deal. So another is we look at our solution in the long term. We can help redefine how the milk quality should be measured to improve the animal welfare, to mitigate the risk of supply chain risks and also to reduce um, uh, the manufacturer costs. And the milk quality, raw milk quality, has a long effect along the supply chain. With the high SEC, the milk quality is low, so shelf life is also low. So that increases manufacturing time for dairy processors. That is why today you hear the premium program from uh, yogurt company. They want to encourage farmers to do better job to reduce their SEC in the raw milk. So there's a lot of, lots of chain reaction along the supply chain, right? Because every farmer depends on their revenue, depends on milk quality and milk yields. It also means more and further for dairy companies uh, because the better care of farms means better operation efficiency and better profitability. And also the timely milk performance data like fat, protein, and SEC can support a better decision-making process for dairy companies. Imagine have a thermal map like the visibility in their supply chain. We call SEC quality index can really lower the milk sourcing risk and the cost for large dairy companies. When we talk about mastitis, we might heard antibiotics because uh, uh, when cow has uh, mastitis, the farmer had to give them antibiotics to cure the disease. But oftentimes because there are no um, clear data to support how severe the mastitis. So they sometimes play safe, overdose the cows. Uh, so anytime by regulation, uh, you need seven days for the antibodies to be cleared inside the cow's body. So that means lots of milk are dumped and the unnecessary dose of antibiotics are used. So that is also have a strong environmental uh, impact right, when we talk about the sustainability. So in the long run, we help reduce the use, overuse of antibiotics. And you just got almost half a million dollars in funding. What does that do for the company? So we have been very capital efficient for the past two years. The investment means uh, we can push our product to the market faster to be available to more customers because we're hardware and the AI company. There is a lot of heavy upfront investment cost associated with the product equipment. And with the money, we're also able to have our first hires. So that will be, we will hire a data scientist and a mechanical engineer to our core team. So we're looking forward to that. And above that, I would say our investor, we choose to work with AgriTech. They're more than an investor to us. They also is a, a strategic partner to us. They bring a rich uh, connection, networking, um, industry experience to us. So far, we have connected to Nestle, to lots of feed information companies, to pharma, biopharmaceutical companies. And that alone is um, significant to help Labby to bring our product to the market faster, to 
make more people to see the benefit of what we can do, what we can do to the dairy industries. Is this already on the market or are you just in the middle of rolling it out? We have a, a demo customer uh, earlier this year and the last year. So now our timeline is we're going to have a rollout roll of our demo customers in December, January. So we're excited that so our customer uh, near where we are in the East Coast, but we also had a few demo customers who want to sign up in the West Coast, California. Uh, so right now, the, the thing is that we are very confident that we spent two years uh, really to work on the product to make our accuracy, the modeling accurate, uh, then spend another year to make a product right, because the dairy is a very uh, heavily government-regulated industry. There is a food safety, the, any material we use has to be food safe. And now, after two years, our second-generation product is ready. So by November, we start selling the portable limited launch. That is because we're little capital limited before before we got the half million investment from Agritech. We have a customer send me an email for the past year say, are you guys ready? Are you guys ready? So that is a big incentive for me. You know, here customers say, are you guys ready? We want to buy. We want to become the first testing customer. That is a big encouragement for me. Detection of foreign objects such as metals is a high priority for food manufacturers, especially when in 2019 alone, the USDA reported that 17 million pounds of food was impacted by recalls due to extraneous material. The Thermoscientific Sentinel-1000 Select Scan Metal Detector System features two technologies intended to help food manufacturers achieve a higher level of safety and quality. Alex Kinney, Applications Engineer at Thermo Fisher Scientific, can tell us more. And at the end, we also have a couple of comments from Mike Munnelly, the company's field marketing manager. Well, obviously there was no physical pack expo this year, but it took place. And I was wondering how you approached that in terms of what you had to do in order to turn what would have been a physical meeting into meeting with people online. Yeah, so Pack Expo this year was certainly unique. Most years for the show, we'll have tens of thousands of people attend, and thousands will walk by our booth who we could greet personally. Uh, none of that happened this year. The show went fully virtual. So rather than providing truly live demonstrations, we uploaded videos on demand for viewers to come watch at any time to simulate the live demonstration experience. So it was certainly unique. You know, we love the opportunity to get in front of customers and demonstrate our products and services and what we could do for them. And we were still able to accomplish that. It was just a, in a unique fashion doing it all online through a computer. And how did the event go for you? Were you happy with the results? So here at Thermo, we were, we were pleased with how it turned out in the end. So we were able to create, you know, three different demonstration videos capturing a few different products in our portfolio uh, that are still available today. Those videos are still accessible. We'll be able to greet anybody who wants to come watch them uh, at any time up through March, I believe. What were the pieces of equipment that you were specifically promoting at the event? So we provided demonstrations of our entire Sentinel metal detector product line. We also demoed our combination system, which is a metal detector and a checkware integrated into one device. 
Uh, and then lastly, our NextGuard entry-level x-ray inspection system. So we were happy to get the opportunity to cover you know, a, a majority of our portfolio, which covers many applications. And which ones are relevant to the dairy industry? So it's it's kind of funny that with the dairy industry, there are different applications, you know, spanning from, you know, not very complicated to highly complex. So actually, just about any of our devices would be a good fit for the dairy industry. You know, you think about some simpler applications like dry products. You know, I've had experience running like dry whey protein powder in a plastic jug that we could run through our thermoscientific Sentinel-1000 select scan metal detector. You know, furthermore, there are more complicated applications in the dairy industry. You know, sliced cheese, stacked sliced cheese uh, was actually the product we used for our Sentinel-5000 multi-scan demonstration for Pack Expo. You know, the sliced cheese is a bit more complicated, so it warrants, you know, a more advanced metal detection solution. Then there are products in the dairy industry that warrant x-ray solutions. So when products have metallized foil or metallized overwrap as part of the packaging, metal detection won't work because the packaging itself is made of metal. So in that case, you would use an x-ray solution to look into the product and find contaminations. And then even furthermore, maybe perhaps the most complex application would be like a glass jar of milk with a metal lid. In that case, you would need one of our specialized x-ray solutions that is a side shooter and looks through the jar of milk through the side and can pick out any contaminants from metal, glass, stone, anything really. So it's, it's interesting with the dairy industry. There's products in consistencies, sizes, shapes, and packaging types that really cover the board. And uh, you know, with a full portfolio of solutions, we can cover just about any dairy application. So I guess in a lot of respects, if a company comes to you, you've first got to find out what they need, but then you can kind of build a bespoke system to meet whatever needs they have? More or less, yes. So the best way to understand a new application is to test the real product. So we actually encourage customers or prospective customers of ours to send us real samples of their product which we can test in our in-house laboratory in Minneapolis, and we can get a better understanding of which product and solution will be the best fit for their application. We call that service product testing, and I actually personally run, run it myself. So that's the best way to understand any application. You just send your product to us. We'll test it. We'll have our team of specialists help propose the right solution for your needs, uh, and then we basically take it from there. And I wonder if you could give me some details on the the uh, Sentinel 1000 Select Scan metal detector. Is that one of your newest products? Yes, it is. So it just debuted a few months ago. It's our newest to the Sentinel metal detector family. But the thermoscientific Sentinel 1000 Select Scan metal detector uh, is our newest product. It's a metal detector that features our new Select Scan technology which is the use of one fully flexible frequency optimized per metal detection application. Uh, and it features our new auto-learn feature, which makes setup streamlined and easy. So basically how auto-learn works, it will choose the single operating frequency for the user 
taking out the guesswork so it can optimize the level of metal detection uh, and set up all sensitivity parameters automatically too. Uh, so we, we designed the flexibility and automation of SelectScan in light of recent industry trends that are pushing more and more toward automation. So a, a big industry trend in the packaging industry is automation. People want to spend less time pushing buttons on their devices. Uh, they want less setup. They want easier use so they can maximize the amount of uptime running a line. And so we designed the Sentinel-1000 with these modern challenges and demands in mind. And so what are the other benefits of that when it comes to a company purchasing one of these? What benefits would they get? Less downtime, better detection? Yeah, you pretty much nailed it. Less downtime and better detection. So by choosing that single operating frequency automatically, you're able to maximize the level of metal detection. It's like when when you're working with a single frequency metal detector, you only have one shot to choose the right frequency. So it's best to use an automated feature to do it for you. Have that peace of mind that you're running at a high level of food safety. Then on the other hand, you know, efficiency. You want your device to be up and running as often as possible. So like a, a common industry metric is OEE or overall equipment effectiveness. Uh, which helps understand the performance of a specific production line. So overall equipment effectiveness uh, is proportional to availability of the line multiplied by performance of the line multiplied by quality. Uh, So that availability is like how much uptime is the line actually performing compared to expectations. So with SelectScan, AutoLearn, you're spending less time pushing buttons which equates to less downtime on the line, which in turn leads to a higher level of availability and a higher level of overall equipment effectiveness for that production line. And is this equipment easy to run or do you need a two-year degree at Harvard in order to be able to run it? (laughs) No, no no two-year course needed. It's relatively easy to get up and running. You know, it's got a full-color touchscreen easy to understand, you know, intuitive icons. And with a feature, like like I said, with AutoLearn, once you initiate the AutoLearn, there's an on-screen wizard telling you explicitly what to do every step. So, so long as you can push one button to initiate the learn, you're just reading through the steps and following along, no problem. And so in terms of the operation of the metal detection, let's say we're looking at yogurt and there's a foreign body in there what happens to the line does it just automatically stop does it reject the item and and how does it work in that respect so with individual packages of yogurt we'd have a system that would reject only the single contaminated package so there's many different types of reject devices available which will be tailored to the application Uh, so for instance a small cup of yogurt could have perhaps a pusher arm that punches that yogurt cup into a reject bin that's then quarantined. Uh, Or additionally, an air blast. If the cup of yogurt is light enough, a quick blast of air can push the product off the line and into a bin. So when it comes to multiple issues, for example, two or three or four in a row are all rejected, do you have parameters whereby you can set it to do different things, such as shut the line down? Yeah. No, that's a great question. 
So if multiple products in a row all start getting rejected, you could imagine maybe there's a problem somewhere upstream in the line. Maybe it's not necessarily that every single piece is contaminated, or maybe there's some you know catastrophic breakdown upstream that's contaminating every single pack. Uh, so we offer like excessive reject alarms. So if you know more than a few packs in a row are all getting rejected, the entire line will shut down and throw an alarm, alerting an operator so they could come over and find the root cause of the problem. Obviously, technical support and assistance has changed somewhat because of the pandemic. Are you able to help your customers in spite of not necessarily being able to go into their facilities? Yes. So it's interesting how the pandemic has just shifted our approach. One of our approaches in in light of the pandemic and all these travel restrictions uh, was to offer demonstrations and help remotely. So at our Minneapolis site, uh, we actually built up like a little studio with a camera, a live, you know, that we can live stream multiple devices. And that way, if we need to reach somebody quickly and effectively, we can appear on screen with audio and help them live demonstrating our equipment and help them solve their problems. And is this on a worldwide basis? You, your products are all sold worldwide? Yes, we have full global coverage. So I assume that you have teams on each continent so that you don't have to have people in Minneapolis responding to a 2 a.m. call in Singapore or whatever. Yeah, no, exactly. We've got we've got people available in every time zone. Are you constantly working on improving all of the equipment that you have as well as developing entirely new products? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as new market demands and trends emerge, uh, we do our best to be flexible and stay innovative. You know, in the past, I can I can think uh, years ago, there was this new demand in metal detectors to make them more resilient to many cycles of harsh washdown, which was becoming a problem that, you know, metal detectors were seeing a short lifetime in some of these harsh washdown conditions. So, you know, so we responded by offering a heavy-duty model available metal detector, which has medical-grade stainless steel, a soft inner epoxy, and tested to 10,000 cycles of thermal shock. You know, on the other hand, there's been a more recent demand within the last few years that X-ray products have higher ingress protection rating, uh, which used to be more uh, specific to metal detectors that people were looking for IP69K, which is dust-proof, spray-proof, you know, washdown resistant. So we responded uh, about a year ago by releasing X-ray models rated to IP69K to meet that new need. So basically, as new trends emerge, as people have new needs for new product offerings, we do our best to stay innovative and provide them what they need. And how much of that is driven by just communicating with your customers and finding out what they are looking for yeah it's very driven by the customers so we'll go out we'll meet with customers we'll ask them what their pain points are we'll do our best to capture their voice and translate that into what we think the solution will be through a product or service i'm just going right back to the beginning again where you were mentioning pack expo and a lot of your videos are still available online yeah absolutely you know, our Pack Expo demonstration videos are still available on demand. 
if you watch them, you'll see they're they're featuring me. So I would love to have you watch and uh, you know reach out to me with any any inquiries you might have. All our videos are available on our company website, thermofisher.com forward slash PEC. And Mike, did you have anything to add to what Alex was saying there? I'd just add one thing on our, our global coverage, Jim. We've got manufacturing and engineering operations in the US. We've also got manufacturing operations in Italy and in China. So there are personnel associated with those three primary manufacturing sites across the globe, really. So that global coverage is, is, is coming from a, a truly global team, both from a, a service and customer support perspective, but also from a, a sales and project engineering perspective. So we are truly able to cover customers around the world. The only other thing I'd um, elaborate on that, that Alex was talking about, we've got the the remote demonstration facility, but we're also doing some frontline technical support through um, a program called TeamViewer, where we can connect directly to the instruments in the field. And it's almost like one of our engineers is sitting in front of the instrument. Um, and if, if you've got a phone line open as well, you can ask a, a customer engineer at a site that maybe we, we can't get into at the moment because of restrictions with that particular site or because of travel generally and get them to act as our hands as we do the sort of more complex side of any any problem solving so i think like a lot of people we, we've had to adapt to the the new world really and um come up with some some more novel solutions that perhaps we used before but just not as extensively as we are doing now Not that long ago, we ran an article on a new report published by the Global Coalition on Aging and Nutritia, which examines the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on older people's health and well-being. To tell us more about this and the importance of nutrition with aging are Michael Hoden, CEO of the Global Coalition on Aging, and Dr. Patrick Camphouse, Senior Medical Affairs Director for Nutritia. And the first person we will hear from is Michael. So I'm wondering if you could first give me a bit of background on how this collaboration came about. Thank you, Jim and uh, Patrick. It's nice to uh, be with both of you. The Global Coalition on Aging and Nutrition uh, have been collaborating for uh, several years now. We are delighted to have Nutrition as a member. But over the last year or so, it's become even more dramatic and of greater need as we've all been going through the pandemic. The uh, relationship between healthy and active aging and good nutrition, in particular good medical nutrition, is more clear than ever. Uh, we have uh, more interest across the board, frankly. And uh, we spent a lot of time, that is the Global Coalition on Aging, over the last uh, eight months uh, convening and addressing this. Our members, along with, of course, Nutrition, uh, are experts from around the world. We see just how dire the nutritional situation was for patients uh, and people generally, even before they become quote unquote patients uh, with COVID-19 and the positive effects good medical nutrition uh, were having and could have. So we're delighted to uh, have this collaboration and particularly and one that builds on our 2018 work, Nutrition, a Solution for the Unprecedented challenge of 21st century aging. And thank you again, Patrick, for your uh, wonderful collaboration. 
Just to build on the great words of Mike, we are, of course, as nutritionists, the specialized nutrition division of the node, very proud to be a part of this great correlation of uh, aging with all this kind of intersector companies with all one objective, how to improve the life of all the people from a positive note. And I wonder, Mike, if you could give me a bit of background on what the GCOA does. Delighted. I was hoping you would ask. Uh, thank you. So we formed the Global Coalition on Aging 10 years ago. Uh, we formed it during the course of 2010. And it's, a, I would say, a unique organization that has withstood the last 10 years. And, and we're very proud. One of our advisors, the chairman of our advisory council, John Beard, over the course of roughly, I believe, from about 08 to about 2018 or 2019, John was the head of Aging a Life course at the World Health Organization. And in many ways, the intellect, policy, and set of ideas behind what has become the decade of healthy aging. I always like to quote John because he said a couple of years ago, if we didn't have the Global Coalition on Aging, we would have to create it. Uh, and we would like to believe that it's the business voice on aging. It's from a very positive point of view. We observed roughly 10 years ago that there was this mega trend of aging that we thought was probably one of the most influential, greatest impact mega trends of our 21st century, but one that was A, uh, where less time was spent on it or appreciated it. Secondly, to the degree it had been focused, it was, oh my God, there's all, all these old people, what are we going to do about it? And so our idea was to bring together a relatively small group of cross-sector, cross-discipline global companies. So we believe that now with the Decade of Healthy Aging launching the engagement of nutrition with our cross-sector global companies to advance the goals and needs of healthy and active aging, the time has clearly come we're delighted to be here working both in the private and public sector with joint partnerships. I know this is an absolutely huge area, and you could probably talk about this for about two hours, but <laughs> what are the current issues surrounding nutrition and aging? One of the big issues, of course, that is literally redefining healthy and active aging and reflected in the WHO Decade of Healthy Aging, which is also in the United Nations sustainable development goals is to measure our health as we age, not so much related explicitly to absence of disease, which of course we'd all like, but rather to functional ability. And that's where, of course, nutritional health uh, and medical nutrition in particular comes in so centrally and so critically. It is the idea that uh, over the next couple of decades, there will be 2 billion of us on the planet over 60. And although we'd like to, of course, do away with everything from diabetes to Alzheimer's, uh, osteoporosis to vision loss, it is also the case that as we age, we will have uh, these conditions of aging, but that one has to then elevate this metric of functional ability. Uh, and that's even more clear and more critical in the context, or has become more clear and more critical in the context of COVID-19, as it's so important to remain, to retain our immune systems and remain as healthy as we can, even while we have conditions of aging, 
health conditions and disease. To build on what uh, Mike is saying, I think also that the importance of nutrition to overall health, as we talked uh, before about, is really increasingly being understood. However, the impact of nutrition when we grow older or in moments of ill health is still really underestimated. Just to give you an example, older people, when they grow older, they often have a reduced appetite or reduced food intake often due to underlying medical conditions or swallowing disorder or social cycle uh, factors like uh, isolation or loneliness. This reduced food intake, however, leads to loss of weight, leads to loss of muscle, loss of strength. This phenomenon is known in literature as disease-related malnutrition. It's often unnoticed, undetected and untreated. But this is not a, a little problem that I put on the table. Only in Europe, Almost, it's estimated that 33 million people are at risk or are disease-related malnourished. And if people are undernourished, underfed, it will affect every bodily organ, also the immune system, important in COVID-19 times. In the pandemic times, we talk a lot, of course, about the immune system. But if your body is underfed, it is impairing your immune response. And not only your immune response, it will impair negatively the recovery for people after an health incident, like hospitalization, recovery times is enlarged and there is a longer length of stay in, for instance, hospitals. So malnourishment is negatively impacts clinical outcomes, quality of life, but also health outcomes and healthcare economic outcomes. Only in the U European Union, it estimated that the cost of malnutrition is costing society 170 billion euros a year. So you can say literally that mal malnutrition stands in a way of people for healthy aging. Obviously, this year has been quite different. How has the pandemic changed things? Well, if anything, actually, the pandemic has made this issue even more acute because all the people are at a high risk of becoming severely ill with COVID. But actually... Often these are all the people with underlying medical condition. And unsurprisingly, this is the same population that is highly prevalent with malnutrition. And malnutrition, when it's present in all the people when they are hospitalized with COVID-19, is negatively impacting their recovery problems. So it should be actually being recognized even more in these pandemic times. But unfortunately, often we accept reduced appetite to reduce food intake, weight loss and muscle loss of elderly people as a part, and probably wrongly, as an in inevitable part of normal aging. And often when you are in healthcare settings, these nutritional issues go undiagnosed. And even if protocols for screening people for malnutrition exist, often they are not broadly implemented or follow-up is not being organized. So you could say even in today's context, it's even more important that this perception of nutrition and how nutrition care should be established should really be tackled and that medical nutrition should become really an integral part of healthcare systems to really build the resilience of all the people in different care settings. Are people who are aging becoming more aware of the importance of nutrition and its ro role in health and immunity? Uh, thank you for asking that. And um, this topic of immunity has been at the forefront since the pandemic started. 
It's highlighting uh, an underlying need condition issue, as Patrick said, that is even more dramatic and more clear. But I would connect um, <clears throat> this uh, explicit question about people becoming more aware during the pandemic and the points that Patrick was just making in uh, several critical ways. Number one, this idea that malnutrition, undernutrition is misunderstood, either not or misdiagnosed, not addressed effectively, particularly as we age, <clears throat> is probably one of the most um, important and central elements of the WHO Decade of Healthy Aging, namely its platform on ageism. It is the idea of, oh, well, she's 78 or he's 84, and that's what happen when, happens when you become uh, 84. You, you know, lose your appetite or you uh, are supposed to uh, you know, have these kind of conditions. Uh, and we see that reflected in a variety of areas, which nutrition can then uh, better nutrition, effective nutrition, can have a positive impact, uh, whether, again, it's from uh, the impact of osteoporosis or vision health, cardiovascular conditions. So this idea of ageism is probably one of the most central features of the entire decade of healthy aging, WHO, and I'm very much uh, reflected in how we want to now reframe and reimagine how we think of healthy and active aging. A second point that Patrick mentioned that's so critical is to link better health, and in this case, healthy and active aging, to fiscal and economic consequences, fiscal and economic outcomes. As we have this mega trend of aging, and as I said, 2 billion of us on the planet over 60, but even more dramatic, more old than young in every society as it modernizes, which is dramatically true all over Europe, including in the Netherlands, in Germany, in the UK, France, Italy, Finland, etc. Uh, it's dramatically true in Japan, as we know, uh, increasingly so across Asia and in North America. Uh, in that situation where there is more old than young, we must keep people healthier and more active in order to address the otherwise economic and fiscal impact on an unhealthy uh, older population. And that's become even more dramatically clear through COVID. So I would um, simply uh, underscore what Patrick said, malnutrition is generally not well recognized. It's a part of this ageism cultural barrier we have. It is not normal to lose weight as we age or that lower appetite and food intake should not be a concern, whether you're 43 or 73 or 92. These are concerns and it would be ageist, um, in many ways, the less acceptable form of discrimination, very bluntly. So I would, I would highlight that and talk about it in the context of our community and in the context of healthy and active aging. Thanks, Mike. And uh, Jim, you had to, to add and to build if you look to one of the reports driven by the World Health Organization on how to improve intrinsic capacity. That's a bit like the scientific holy grail for the elderly uh, to improve, of course, the functional abilities. 
Um, one of the two key recommendations is to increase exercise, which I think we all understand. But the second one is actually to screen elderly for malnutrition. And if people are undernourished, to make sure that people get dietary advice and or medical nutrition to make sure that every elderly gets the nutritional care that he or she deserves. So I think we are starting to see that people recognize the wealth of evidence that is out there in literature. And that's also why we as Nutrition try to be part of these kind of coalitions like this fantastic global coalition of aging to really drive this call for action that medical nutrition and nutrition screening for malnutrition is really becoming integral part of healthcare and that none of us will be forgotten to make sure that if your nutritional care is not at the level that it should be, that people are taking care of you. I wonder if, uh, Patrick, you could tell me what studies Nutrition has done in the field and what role Nutrition can play in helping in this area? Of course, we as uh, Nutrition have been pioneering nutritional solutions for over 100 years, and there is a a wealth of information and clinical data out there that highlight the negative consequences of malnutrition on health. And we have done for decades clinical studies in the in area when people who are malnourished are getting the medical nutrition they need, how this can improve health outcomes and clinical and economic outcomes. Recent studies, just to highlight some of them, in these areas of nutritional care is, for instance, that we did a recent study in the UK how we demonstrated how medical nutrition, combining with dietary advice, improves, for instance, a reduction of healthcare use for all the people living at home. So that's one setting where we can show effects and where we have show effects. Another setting was, for instance, a recent study we finished in Sweden, a study in nursing home, where we show positive impact of combining medical nutrition and exercise programs, for instance, on physical function in elderly in nursing homes. Also recently, we had a fantastic study done in Italy where researchers demonstrated how medical nutrition, specifically targeting the muscle health, had a beneficial impact on functional outcomes in patients above 65 years undergoing rehabilitation. Of course, we do this by supporting uh, independent research initiatives, but as well as we do our own research in collaboration with our own Danone Nutritia Global Research Center and innovation centers all around the world, working in collaboration with uh, universities and clinicians. What are we doing beyond these kind of studies where we address malnutrition in different care settings? We also have started, and, and we have uh, discussed this before, uh, Jim, because earlier this year we announced that we will support research initiatives in 16 countries around the world via 1 million euro funding program, which we call NutriCover. And the NutriCover is an independent research program to provide insights about how nutritional care can be improved specifically for COVID patients, and specifically when COVID patients recover uh, from the ICU setting and when they go to the hospital setting. Because we do know that many of those patients, if they are staying in the hospital, they are probably, well, we know that actually from research now, that more than half of those patients are malnourished. And when they are in the ICU, they are often are immobilized for weeks. People lose up to one kilogram of muscle a day. So they are severely weakened and have lost a lot of weight and muscle 
when they are uh, discharged from the ICU and are discharged to home. So for their rehabilitation programs and getting back to their normal activities, daily living, exercise with medical nutrition is probably crucial. And more broadly, of course, we also supporting healthcare professional in delivering optimal nutritional care uh, with information. Information about our products, information about our pumps in the intensive care units and so forth. This year, we had more than 20 webinars with educational med uh, materials done, reaching more than 70,000 HCPs. So either individually or together, how do you increase awareness of nutrition among the aging population? Well, so from a global coalition point of view, uh, a first or the first step, of course, is the data, the information, the knowledge that's built on very sound research and work. Uh, and that's why we're so thrilled, Global Coalition on Aging, to have uh, Nutricia, uh, Deno Nutricia as a member. And your uh, reference, Patrick, for example, to the 60 country study, uh, the support your research centers are giving is something uh, we're just so thrilled with. We have a website that we put information like this on the website. We have ongoing, of course, reports and dialogues, roundtables, conversations. Last eight months, they've been virtual. And, and to build on what uh, Mike is saying, it's the same uh, for us at Nutricia. We want to continue really this uh, sharing of fact-based information uh, for elder people about the right nutritional mes uh, uh, messages. That's also why we continue to advocate for the importance of concrete action for policymakers to really integrate malnutrition screening and treatment to improve the care of elderly. And uh, this is especially, I think, important in the context of COVID-19 because it's mainly, of course, affecting the older people. And it's uh, particularly then important to consider nutrition in, in the context of healthcare, which is, of course, the medical nutrition piece that we already touched upon. And it's important that when people are prescribed medical nutrition by a healthcare professional, they are malnourished or at risk of malnutrition due to the condition of a disease. Meaning in many cases, nutrition is then considered integral part of disease management. And often in these cases in Europe, these products are then also being reimbursed. So that's why we also strongly advocate for the integration of medical nutrition in healthcare so that even a greater number of patients and elderly with underlying medical conditions who are malnourished can have access to the benefits of good nutritional care. You have the new report that came out, which is the reason for doing this. So where where do you go from here with that report and to improve things? Uh, well, of course, we uh, continue to communicate the report and work with it not only in popular settings, but as uh, Patrick said, in um, critical settings uh, healthcare professionals from uh, geriatricians and primary care physicians to nurses and elder caregiving. And uh, we think that highlighting uh, this kind of education for people, putting it on the WHO website, they are very soon up and running in that space, making it a part of the sustainable development goals. Healthcare is a central part of the UN sustainable development goals and information around healthy and active aging related to malnutrition, related to the connection to wellness and prevention is so critical and encouraging policymakers 
to recognize the importance of this as part of functional ability uh, and wellness. Uh, and therefore, as Patrick said, to have different kind of reimbursement and payment flows, uh, whether it's particularly in America and the private sector, but across the world in Europe, and public and private sector is so important. And I'll build on that, I think from Anushisha, we will continue to work together with coalitions like the Global Coalition of Aging of other partners to make sure that malnutrition is not unnoticed, undetected, undertreated. Second thing we will continue to do is, of course, to advocate that medical nutrition becomes a part of disease management. And that's an essential part because it's actually a fact that most of the healthcare professionals are not being trained or educated on uh, medical nutrition. Uh, for instance, in uh, Europe, uh, most of the healthcare professionals during their curriculum only gets a few hours of training on nutrition. So meaning we need still to do a lot of medical uh, nutrition education, and you can do that only with fact-based information together with partners like the Global Coalition of Aging. And, and I can tell you, uh, Jim, we're again delighted from a Global Coalition point of view to have a cross-sector global uh, membership. And when we come out with uh, reports of this kind, uh, nutritional health, uh, our members in technology and financial services are as interested in this, not only for their own focus on healthy and active aging, but for their uh, employees, their employees' families and communities, um, as are um, our healthcare and uh, pharma companies. So, you know, it's a very interesting um, intersection and one, as Patrick says so well, uh, we recognize in the context of silver economy, but becomes even more dramatic over the last eight or 10 months of uh, uh, reflecting the needs around COVID-19. So again, thank you uh, so much for your partnership here. My pleasure. And likewise, and I would like to say always this quote I like a lot, if you're serious about health, you're serious about nutrition. And now it's off to Ireland and Liam Fenton at StoneX, who can give us the weekly update on the global dairy markets. While last week was a very busy week trading-wise on the futures market, uh, this week was a little more muted, where we seem to have hit the Christmas lull a little early. However, prices uh, continue to be flat to very well supported in the case of proteins, which reflects GDT uh, of yesterday, which was up overall 4.3%, and uh, skimmel powder was up about 3.6%. So we had uh, November, December butter uh, remaining around the 33.30 level uh, of last week. Quarter one, marginally stronger at around the 33.10 level. Quarter two was also up around 34.10 level, which is up around 10 euros on the week. Quarter three was a good bit stronger, all right, up around maybe 40 euros on the week to 3,500 level. Skimmel powder, as I say, um, was uh, a, a bit stronger. We had November, December up around 15 euros to the 22.05 level. Uh, quarter one was up around 60 euros on the week to the 22.50.55 level. Uh, quarter two skimmel powder was up around 40 euros to the 22.70 level. And quarter three um, was up uh, just under 2300 level at around 22.95, which was up around 45 euros on the week. We continue to remain steady after its uh, rally last week. 
Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week and see if the festive season is affecting sales of things like cream and butter and cheese. Stone X, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another show. Amazingly, all of the interviews for the next one are already done, which is a good thing as I'm taking Fridays off to use up all the vacation days I have left. I tried to avoid the messages last Friday coming in, but I wasn't that successful. Now I just have to find the time to edit all these interviews, which will probably be on Saturday because I took Friday off. I'm sure there are plenty of people in the same boat. And then, of course, it will be all over for another year. Amazing how last year at this time we had no idea what was just around the corner. I wonder how many Christmas gifts this year will be designer masks or hand sanitizer. Interesting times, for sure. Anyway, I hope wherever you are, you have a great week. Please stay safe and take care. And, as always, thanks for listening. 